It's a great text for all of us today, isn't it? And uh, the Lord even allows providential sense of humor things to happen to lighten our hearts and loads. And uh, that was the most special, special music we've ever had, I think. Seriously, I thank God for even those things, you know? I don't know who it was or how it happened, but I think, I think we all needed a little smile uh, this morning. Daniel, I understand, too, that you've won a recent compose, award for composition. Is that true? Yeah, the Webster University. The what university? Go ahead and stand it and say it louder than I can say it. Webster University. Young Composer Competition. Praise God. I want you to know he, he composes a lot of the music that's done here. Forget the bloodline, um, if you can, but um, Micah is um, signed with an agent. He'll be headed to try for the next phase of whatever God has for his career. So I want to congratulate him, and he'll be taking off in the morning and uh, participating in one of our arts churches in the Atlanta area uh, as he's down there. He's a lot bigger than me, so I'm going to get pounded later for that. So <laughs> you can demonstrate your love to me by your protection of me after, after the service. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 8, 9, and 10 today. Uh, really, my intention was to get through the rest of the chapter that discusses on how grace underpins Christian relationships. Because, my goodness, it's so... We've experienced it here this morning... Um, in so many practical ways, uh, we experiencing it throughout the week. Uh, but really what's happened for those of you who are newer to grace this morning, um, the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians uh, taught us that their own their own, uh, I can't say inability, their own lack of desire, because by God's grace, we're always able to confront sin, right, in our own lives. Uh, their own lack of desire to confront sin uh, compelled Paul to write his first letter to them, and many of you that know your Bibles for a long time know the details as to why he wrote that letter. There was a second letter that uh, Paul wrote both letters were, I guess we could call them severe in nature. In other words, they dealt with heavy things. The second letter, which is not part of our Bibles, which many theologians believe would be called the severe letter by Paul in this context. Some would disagree. Some would say the severe letter. They would always recognize the third letter, but they would call the severe letter 1 Corinthians. It doesn't matter where you're really at. Paul wrote three letters to this church and Two of them are recorded in Scripture and one's not. Apparently, the one that's not recorded is referenced here in our context and uh, in another context earlier that we studied in 1 Corinthians. And those letters were written not just to confront a serious issue in the Corinthian church. That was just the threshold. It was to get across the threshold to actually have them respond well to God's heart for them to deal with the sin so that their relationship 
could be restored, and that wasn't even the conclusion of his desire or his goal. There is no gospel progress unless Christians are right with the Lord and with each other in the local church. That's the end game. That's the ultimate purpose he's writing these letters. Because the church had been distracted and derailed from doing gospel work together. And that's where we're going to conclude this morning. Uh, but let's continue on now uh, with these particular verses. Lamentations 3.23. I read that this week in relationship to all that's going on. The writer of Lamentations says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. And his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We sing that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I think we need to remember that when we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, we're primarily thinking about the Lord's loyal love to us. Great is your compassion. Great is your loyal love, your hesed love. The Hebrew word is there. Your loving kindness to us. Your undying, eternal commitment to us. So you are great in faithfulness because you've loved us this way. We've quoted John 13, 1, often to you. The apostle John says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end of the, the Greek word there is Ion, until the end of the age. When Jesus chooses to love, he cannot turn back from that choice. We even sung of that this morning. That's why we love him, because he first chose to love us. There's a commitment of divine love of God to us, and then from us to one another. I think we would all agree about that. You say, Pastor Tim, that's kindergarten theology. Well, apparently the Corinthian church um, you know, thought they were probably a little bit more advanced than they were, and they say they needed some spiritual remediation. Paul reminds the Ephesian church that was a much more healthy church to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and then how? You forgive one another the same way God in Christ has forgiven you. So apparently this loyal love that God has for us is to be on a finite level reciprocated to one another. So what truly God has joined together, let no man, what? Put asunder. It's an undying commitment to be sure. It's a loyal commitment to one another, but only because God's commitment of love to us is a picture of perfect loyalty. I always thought I knew what loyal love was when I was growing up. I, I look back with superlative language. What did I love most when I was a kid? And uh, there was a lot of inanimate things I gave my greatest affection to. Like grilled cheese and tomato soup. <laughs> right? I have this 
undying superlative love for that glorious combination to this day. I remember I had a, I had a little friend uh, in kindergarten. Uh, it was a girl who happened to be a friend, not a girlfriend. So if you've got to qualify, I'll get, I'll get it later from my kids if I don't. I was at that point married to another girl named Elizabeth. Because I've talked to you about that before. My, my first marriage was performed by my brother John, who married me in this particular family's church basement to Libby. And um, I was just five. What did I know? Right? So I guess I had an undying commitment to Libby, but I would go every Wednesday after kindergarten to Karen's house. And her mom, every Wednesday, had grilled cheese and tomato soup. That was it. And I was very much affected, severely affected, when uh, we didn't have a particular school day on a Wednesday because of a snow day or a holiday. I wasn't going to have that, that grilled cheese. I had a lot of loyal commitments when I was a kid. I loved, um, we had a, we thought we were cool, but when we were later elementary school, we had a bike gang in our neighborhood. And every Saturday, just after lunch, we'd get on our bikes and we'd tour the neighborhood and let everyone know who was king in the neighborhood. It was us on our bikes. We were the best. We were cool. Later on, that, that moved towards, now this is going to sound really nerdy to some of you, but that moved towards a, a does anybody even know what a moped is anymore? We had a, we had a moped gang. And we were cool because we could ride those mopeds to school even before we had our licenses. And whose great idea was that? I don't know. But we were, we were at, we had an undying commitment to that group. I had a tree fort gang, right? And the club membership to that tree fort game was an intense process. I had two neighbors that grew up in this house right next door. And I had a tremendous loyal affection for Gene and Chris. And I had other friends that I had tremendous loyal affections for in, in high school and then in college and then later on uh, in life, even, even to now. But as you grow older as a believer, the use of superlative language of love in describing what or who you love, it matures, doesn't it? It just does. The New Testament is saturated with information on relationships. If I was to pause and to have all of you just start telling us from your seat those texts that you're familiar with, we could take up the remainder of the half hour that we have left. Most importantly, our relationship with God in Christ and his word, the scriptures, the Bible is foremost, isn't it? But there are others that function based on our walk with the Lord. Home and family. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 3. Husbands loving their wives. Wives reciprocating that loyal love to their husbands. Parents to children. Children to parents. It's there. My goodness, the Apostle Paul and even Peter 
mention work relationships. Now, you might not feel very um, affectionate towards your boss or towards your peers, but nonetheless, there's a, there's a loyal commitment there where we take the loyal commitment of God in Christ to us and we commit ourselves. Paul says it. Whether you have a godly boss or an ungodly boss, we commit ourselves for what? For eternal purpose, so that others might see through our work ethic and through our joyful disposition that there's someone that's different about us, something which is a someone that's different about us. We work so that they might see Jesus. It's in our relationship with each other, in worship, as we've already experienced today, in fellowship that Luke talks about in Acts 2, 41 to 44, in discipleship, which the whole book of 1 Thessalonians addresses, the life of Christ himself teaches, as Paul related also with Aquila and Priscilla and Barnabas and Paul with Timothy, all throughout the New Testament, we know that there's a loyal love of commitment in that disciple-making relationship that many decry these days, but you can't get away from in the plain and simple elementary reading of Scripture. Christians relating with each other in worship and fellowship, after worship, personal worship and fellowship with their Lord throughout the week, is really the most blessed relating on earth. You've met believers out and about. I can, I can remember being in South Africa uh, on a missions trip. And obviously this is going to happen, but I could walk into a church for the first time. I've never met the pastor or the people. And within a moment, there's a, there's a divine affection between us. Why? Because... They're relating to me the loyal love of God in Christ that's been given to them and vice versa. And boy, you add on top of that, the indwelling of the spirit of God in both, that's infectious and very encouraging and very immediate. I've sensed the same thing in Argentina when I went to speak there with pastors and people I've never met or known before. My goodness, I've, I've experienced that on Disney transportation going from our hotel to the Magic Kingdom. We're sitting across from a, from a party on the bus and you just start to talk and immediately you know there's something different. And with, within a couple miles, you can find out that they're born again and there's a joy about their life and their disposition and a clarity about their relationship with you that just only can come from the loyal commitment of God in Christ to them and them to us and us to them as both are indwelt by the Spirit of God. How much more are relationships in the church? Those are describing intimate affection of a spiritual kind from those far away, but how much more here as we enjoy the same thing as we gather together and as we minister together during the course of a week the last 12 months was a time of circumstances that sought to tear us apart. And my goodness, our hearts hurt when we couldn't be together. Even now, we should be recommitted. That there should be nothing that keeps us from worshiping and serving together. Absolutely nothing. Why? 
because our relationships are not built on ourselves or our circumstances, but on the loyal love of God in Christ to me and you. And therefore, our undying love for one another remains the same. When anything or anyone is used of our chief enemy to divide us from each other, that's the most unique and deep and agonizing pain, isn't it? When Christian marriages struggle and separate, that's tragedy. When Christian parents are separated from their Christian children due to struggles with sin, that's even more devastating at times. And when saints in the church struggle relating to, uh, uh, to spiritual issues, sin issues in their own lives, that's just beyond tiresome to a pastor, let alone the people. When people struggle with their pastor and the church as a whole due to pride and sinful circumstances and they separate from each other, that's its own devastation. And my goodness, it's like really devastating. Add to that struggle without the church in various circumstances, the pain from relationship struggles inside the church. Honestly, I'd never expect anyone to understand, but there's really no more difficult thing even a pastor faces. There's just not. And Paul says that in our own text that we've already studied. He says it again here, right? He's in great time of depression, great time of agony. He really does not want to go on. Why? Because sin in the lives of God's people and sin particularly in the life of one religious individual that sought to divide his relationship from the Corinthians was still having an influence on them and it wasn't until Titus came bearing the good news that the Corinthians had responded to his letters even the severe letter that's not included in scripture they've responded and what? The relationship is on its way back to being restored. And by the way, the language that's used here, it was fully restored even before they had a chance to see each other again. That's when you know it's true reconciliation. So again, it's no wonder why Paul felt like he couldn't go on, but as we studied last week, the, the comfort of Titus changed things. And now he's given reason to go on. And remember the end of verse 7 last week? And just we just kind of read that again real quick as we move forward. We'll read verse 7. And not only by his coming, he's been comforted, but also the comfort with which he was comforted in you. So we've got multiple layers of comfort going on. God to the people of Corinth, the people of Corinth to Titus, Titus to the people of Corinth, and now Titus back to Paul by his message to the people of Corinth that they're doing the right thing the right way. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me so that I rejoice even more. Those three phrases we looked at last week and we just kind of summarized those three phrases. You know what? This is, this, is, this is loyal love. This is what it is, as God's people love one another. It's, it's, it's re relaying back to one another what God, again, has relayed to us. And so I want to move on to another virtue this morning, and we're just going to look at one. We saw loyalty last week is necessary for the maintenance 
of love relationships among God's people. But Paul says here, I'm thankful and I'm rejoicing because you were truly repentant. Repentance is necessary so that loyal love can be maintenanced among God's people. And that's really our proposition for this morning. Repentance from sin is necessary to maintain healthy relationships in the church. Sin is the primary culprit that divides relationship in the church. It's not the only, but it's the primary. So consequently, repentance from that sin would be necessary for relationships to be restored. What had divided them? Well, certainly we understood what Paul wrote in his first letter. I've described to you the severe letter, so we're not going to take any more time on that. But we know that their disinterest in confronting sin personally and then corporately had divided them. But the language of chapter 2 that we've already studied weeks ago, and the language throughout the rest of this letter tells us that there was probably one person in the church of Corinth that was the, we'll call him the religious ringleader. One person who was probably in leadership that showed up and finally demonstrated that he was just a professing Christian, not a confessing Christian, and he was probably well-spoken, um, more well-known, like I said, because of leadership, and he was, he was able to identify the other professing but not confessing believers in the church of Corinth, gather them to himself, and then kind of cause quite a stir. But Paul references one person that had, in addition to their own lack of desire to confront sin that was dividing the Corinthians from Paul who led them to Christ and Paul from the Corinthians. So again, he's received the report from Titus and his soul is comforted because the report's a good one. He's written them rebuke and they've responded well. We'll see that in the language this morning. So let's see how Paul explains repentance here and to know that it's, it's real and necessary to the continued formation of Christian relationships. Let's read verses 8 through 10. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the latter caused you to sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Before we dive into these verses, both this week and next, I just want to take a brief look at how important Christian relationships are just by the mere consideration of the emotions Paul details here. Why have all these emotions listed and then preserved? And I think there's a lot to learn. You, you probably saw the word sorrow or sorrowful multiple times. We're going to find out that there's good sorrow and there's bad sorrow. But sorrow can be a good emotion. There's regret. There's rejoicing. 
Later on in the two weeks from now, we'll get into verse 11 where we're going to see the emotions of indignation and fear and longing and zeal and avenging. All this humanity involved just to show us that when Christian relationships aren't going well, it is indeed an emotional time. And it's okay. Because the restoration of those relationships is worth fighting for. It's worth agonizing over. And in a Christian relationship, it should never become easy come, easy go. We mentioned last week that loyalty to a person or to some moral cause in our culture, let alone the cause of the mission of God in Christ and the church, is, is, is fleeting from our whole culture. We don't have to detail all of the lack of loyalty to moral and righteous and biblical things that's just saturated our culture now. But in the church, a commitment to Christ and his cause in one another is, can be altered by sin, but must be restored by grace. And it may be hard, but it's worth it because it's for eternal purpose. So whenever relationships have been severed, there's been an ocean, literal ocean of emotion involved. And that's okay, as long as we're headed in the right direction. When spiritual relationships have been severed because of sin, the emotion is even deeper and of a different kind compared to when God's providence separates people. What do I mean? Well. There's been believers in our church that have moved out of town. That's God's providence. We couldn't, we couldn't stop that. And certainly that hurts and we miss them. Um, um, that's difficult for sure. There's those that we've experienced this last week that are separated from us in death. And that's certainly difficult and grievous. But I really don't know of another Pauline passion, passage in the New Testament where emotions are so exhaustively put before us. And I think that's because it's in relationship to human relationships. Right? I think there's a special pain when Christian relationships are severed due to sin and not just normal providential circumstances. I remember visiting a missionary on the foreign field a couple years ago, and they were speaking of another missionary across town that they used to partner with, but no longer. And with tears in his eyes as we were talking and meeting for the first time, he said, I've never hurt more in my life over something. And I get that. Because it wasn't just a philosophical difference. There was a sin involved that wasn't addressed. And here they are in a foreign field as two Americans that could be encouraging each other and doing the cause of Christ together in that town, which is what they went there for anyway, and yet they're allowing, he's allowing a sin, or the other party was allowing a sin to be unaddressed. And that is, a, that, is a, that is a unique and special pain. And can I just tell you this? If there is no unique and special agony that you experience when you're not right with another believer, even in this local church, it's probably because your heart was never really tied to the cause of Christ anyway. 
You cannot say that you're a Christian and not be right with another Christian in a local church context and not be in absolute agony of soul. You cannot be. Because it's not just the agony, again, over the broken relationship. It's the agony over the, the Spirit of God being grieved. It's the agony over the, the cause of the Spirit of God's existence to underpin the very ministry of, the, of Christ and the promotion of His gospel that's being thwarted because of your stubbornness. It is a unique and special agonizing pain like no other when Christian relationships are divided either domestically or ecclesiastically over sin because the very cause of Christ is hindered. This is why we hurt so, or this is why we should hurt so when things aren't right between us. I think this is why Jesus prayed in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't even bring your gift to the altar if what? There's somebody else in the body that you know has something against you and you have something against them. Don't even think about coming to worship. Stay in the parking lot, get right with God, get right with each other, then come worship because why? It's not just all about worship. We leave from this place to spend six days a week apart from each other doing what? Reaching souls for Christ. This is ultimately why we do it. To glorify God by evangelizing the saints while we equip the saints. By evangelizing the lost while we equip the saints with the goal of Christ's likeness. So again, when we know when sin's involved, the Holy Spirit is grieved. The cause of Christ is, is thwarted. If it's separating Christian relationship, then it's separating Christian worship and Christian fellowship and Christian cause. Like the very reason we're all saved and placed together is jettisoned or at best deprioritized. And oh, how Satan loves to dismiss from our lives the missional reason why God saved us in the first place. So yes, there are inevitability a lot of emotions that are the natural result of Christian relationships being severed in any way, but especially when sin is involved. So Paul divides these emotions and some of them are the same. We can experience similar emotions, whether in being right with God or not being right with God. We'll explain that. So he divides these emotions into two categories. He teaches that we have correct emotions or false emotions when we're confronted with the truth of God's word. The correct emotions and consequent actions define true repentance here, and the false ones demonstrate mere human remorse. And that's really where we're going to dive into both here and next time we're together. The difference between repentance and remorse. Or repentance and what our world today would call, be called, call reform. It's a big difference. We've already read the text. So in verse 8, Paul's intention was to write, to confront, because he loved the Corinthian people in Christ and he was seeking to protect gospel progress. So when he writes to be, he wants to write to be clear and concise and compelling for eternal purpose. Yes, he did write to confront. I did write, he says, to leave, lead you to regret. He said, I don't regret that. 
but I do regret it if you didn't receive it with the purpose for which it was intended. But it worked, praise God, Titus reports, because your sorrow only lasted for a short while while you experienced true repentance and not long-term regret. That's a powerful thing. And by the way, think about this. If the severe letter that Paul's talking about here is the letter that's not included in our Bibles, that that means that letter was not inspired. Hang on with me here. But it goes to show you how a spirit-filled believer, God can even use a letter that they write. God the Spirit can use, can prompt you, us even, to write a letter and then to use that letter if that letter is done in love and compassion to convict the heart of another person that's separated from you and you from them. You can't restore a relationship unless you're willing to talk. And it takes two for restoration to take place. So when I sit in my office with two believers, whether it be a married couple, two siblings, a parent with a child, or maybe just two, two believers in the church, and there's conflict, right? And we're there for three hours. It's happened many, many times. We're there for three hours, and it feels like after three hours, you've made no progress. Because both still are entrenched where they're entrenched. And my goodness, I found myself thoughtless in this thing. And it's the other person's fault. Right? And they're both that way. Every single time I face that, I've said this. Well, then one of you has to act with the love of God. Someone has to do it. Someone has to initiate compassion. And by the way, the person who decides to do that is going to have to realize this first, that your spouse, your son, your daughter, your friend is not the greatest sinner in the room. You are. Right? So if we're going to get past this guttural, agonizing time, this visceral contention in our souls where it seems to be come to an impasse, we can't break through. There's a roadblock that's impenetrable. Someone has to be influenced by the grace of God to step out and act with the love of God and say, you know what? I am the worst sinner in, all the, in this room. I can't believe God saved me. I can't believe God gave me any human relationships knowing who I am, let alone the two that I have in this room with you and pastor. And I don't know how God's going to work this out. But because I realize who I am, I realize that I'm probably the problem in this whole thing. And I don't know, God's going to show me. But I'm going to commit myself to love you the way Jesus loved me. Because you know what, sweetheart? You know what, friend? Jesus' loyal love for me doesn't stop when I'm having a bad day. And Jesus' loyal love for me doesn't get more attaboy and more hip hip hurrah when I'm having a good day. God just loves me in Christ. So I choose to love you the way same, God lo the way, same way God loves me. I 
choose to do that. I don't feel like it at all. But I choose. That's what agape love is. It's not the love of feeling. It's the love of choice. And you know what? When God's people, when someone stands up and chooses to act and makes that choice to love, you know that's not them. You know that's God's grace working in them. There's no other explanation. Absolutely none. Okay. So when you remember how much God acted upon your soul by the Holy Spirit, you'll know God's grace to sustain your relationships and to cause you to get over the little tiny speed bumps that look like Mount Everest's in your life right now because you've not allowed God's grace to make them smaller and overcome. Verse 9. Told you we'd probably get through this the next couple weeks. Paul says, because they're responding, now that's where the emotion of rejoicing comes. And I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. Being made sorry was necessary. But that you were made sorrowful to what? Loyalty last week, repentance this week. Repentance is necessary for the maintenance of Christian relationships. Okay? Repentance is necessary. Okay. For you were made sorrowful according to who? God. God brings the change so that you might not suffer the loss in anything through us. I rejoice. That's what it's like when Christians are right with each other, right? It's a wonderful time of happiness and rejoicing. It's the antithesis of the agony we experience when we're not right with each other. Okay? It's the, it's the rejoicing for so many reasons, not just because we're right with each other and we can love each other and hug each other and pray with each other and care for each other and minister to one another, but we get to do something together, right? I get to pray for the people in your life that don't know Jesus yet, and you get to pray for the ones in mine. And we get to report to each other how we get to live the life of Christ together in our community, all because we chose to get right with each other. It's about a cause. Great, great rejoicing. We learn from this text, and we'll learn from, the, from this verse, and we'll learn from the verses following that there's, there's, a, there's a good sorrow and there's a bad sorrow. Anytime that someone's in sin and God confronts their heart with truth and they feel sorrowful, that's good. But God's grace compels us to confess, right? What's Proverbs say? Forsake and then prosper. Any good sorrow that's held on to longer becomes bad sorrow. It moves from repentance to, to just regret and remorse. Right? And that's to be agonized over. So Paul says here, yeah, I rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you 
were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, to the point of change. And that's really what the word repentance means. Metanoia means just to really agree with God about what he thinks about sin. People say, oh, it's about changing your life. It's about changing your mind. It's about changing your direction. There is no change of mind and direction until you agree with God about what he thinks about your sin. Right? You got to see it as he sees it. That convicts the soul. Then there's confession. There's repentance. And then there's the new direction. Paul says here that God even used apparently an uninspired letter from him as he was controlled by the Spirit of God to write it to affect this change in their hearts that Titus reports from him. The necessity of Christian communication again um, is so clear that someone's got to step out in the love of God to do the right thing. Verse 10 we'll get into next week where Paul sharpens his quill and dips it into fresh ink with certainty and states of truth that will be underpinned with detail in verse 11. We read verse 10. He begins again to get more clear. For the sorrow that is according to God produces metanoia without regret to salvation. We'll find out next week that When the sin's not dealt with, that you can justify the way you're feeling, you can explain the way you're feeling, you can even, in a certain sense, verify with facts that you are really the victim in a situation. You can do all those things and still not know repentance and therefore live with regret. Because you cannot get out of this immediate context in the chapter or in the book and, no, and, and dismiss the fact that the regret that he's talking about here is in large part living life until you die and you face Jesus and he has to look at you and say, do you remember the reason why I saved you? You got stuck in qualifying why you wouldn't get restored And so therefore you separated yourself from the very cause personally, ecclesiastically, why I saved you, which was to promote the reason why I came to earth to die for everybody. That's the greatest regret. It's a gospel regret. It's not just the regret of not maintenancing human relationship. That's temporal. The influence of the gospel is eternal. There's something much bigger of a degree of regret here within the context that we all need to understand. But Paul says, hey, no regret because you responded to biblical sorrow, what some would call biblical guilt in the right way, and your feet were set back to living for eternal purpose. No regret. It produces a repentance without regret. Your translator added the word leading here to salvation. Now, some may agree to disagree, but I will tell you this, that the, the, the salvation here, as we'll explain it last week, I don't believe is the, primarily the salvation of conversion, but the salvation of being released from the bondage of what was keeping them at odds with another believer. Certainly these are saved people that Paul's writing to. Certainly they've received. Some of them may have gotten saved through the process. I don't know of having this sin that's divided them confronted. I don't know. Right? 
But there is a repentance that I even believe a Christian experiences that's by the same grace of God that saved them, that restores them to right relationships in a room. And some of you have been involved in those conversations where you went into the room and you thought there's no way this thing's going to be reconciled. And you walk out of the room and it's reconciled. You can say again, that's just grace. <laughs> no idea that was going to happen. And then you're released, you're saved from that moment that had been putting you in bonds apart from missional purpose. But Paul says here, now I rejoice because you're back at it and you're back at it with me. We're back at it together, together. And he'll explain, so all of us, right? Spurgeon said, don't speak to be clear, but speak to, to, don't speak so clearly to be understood, but speak so clearly not to be misunderstood. He details repentance here in verse 11, like no other passage in the Bible. And we're going to find out exactly so we can walk out of the room next Sunday morning knowing exactly what it is and what the fruits of it are um, so that we can maintain our relationships in a godly way for gospel purposes. All right? Let's pray together. Bow our heads and close our eyes. I just want you to think as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed about your relationships. I know it's been an emotional morning. I'm part of that. I just want you to think about your relationships. Your relationships in specific with those who know Jesus. And even more specifically, those who know Jesus inside our church. And I want you to just be aware of the fact that there's no relationship inside this room, whether you know someone well or not, that can just be tossed off because of a disagreement over something or whatever because the gospel's at stake. say, well, it really wasn't over a sinful thing. It really wasn't over this, that, and the other. I get that. I get that. But you have to remember, too, it's only sin that separates. Maybe the, maybe the sins become the pride that you believe in, believe in something that someone else may not believe, and that pride has separated you, and sin is pride, and pride is sin. Whatever's keeping you from a right relationship with another believer, just remember the gospel's at stake. And I'm not trying to guilt trip you. If you're sorrowful over that, I don't regret that, but I would regret it if you didn't deal with it. And I think in time, so would you. So just think about that with those who are with us worshiping today. I hope your rights with, hearts are right with God and, and consequently with each other, that the loyal love he's demonstrated to you would be the loyal love you demonstrate to each other, okay? Just pray over that this week. Don't lose sleep over it. But if you need to get right with the Lord on something and then get right with somebody else, maybe write a letter. Someone's got to act with the love of God and demonstrate the grace of God, okay? Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for our time together today, worshiping and encouraging each other and listening to your word. And I trust learning from it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.